Hello and welcome to our second episode of our Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth podcast with me, Noah, Sunil and Phoebe. Today we're going to be talking about one of the government's headline policies, which is to become a truly global Britain. But we're going to be delving into what does that really mean and what does it really look like moving forward? So I think the first thing that we're really going to look at is what does this mean for the Commonwealth? Considering we're Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth, this is our main focus. What does this really mean? Sinal, any thoughts? I think it's really exciting. Um, it's, it's safe to say that Commonwealth hasn't been talked about that much in the last 30, 40 years. I think we've been naturally a lot focused on the European Union and um, I feel like it's almost been neglected to a certain extent. So I think it's really, really exciting. I think there's huge prospects in the Commonwealth. Um, the, the the stats, the, the numbers show, you know, with the population accounting for more than 33% of the world. Um, that alone for me just shows that there is huge, huge scope um, for the role of the Commonwealth. 100% agree. What, and if you look at the GDP as well, there's huge economic clout. Um, and it, it's really something that's been much maligned, I think, over... Over the past few decades, when we focused, obviously, on the, the free trade department right on our doorstep, but moving forward 100% as we move beyond the EU, there's, there's a combined GDP of £10 trillion. Uh, pounds. Like, that's, that's a fantastic opportunity for trade. No, d definitely. Um, I, I think it's just it's, it's an exciting time. You know, we're seeing almost, it feels like every day, Liz Trust is doing a new trade deal and um with different countries and i think it's just it's really exciting and a lot of the a lot of them are commonwealth countries um so i think it's nice to see that government having that sort of initiative um and you know the you know we, we've seen member states uh, are 20 percent more likely to trade with each other in the commonwealth than outside nations and trading costs are 20 percent less between commonwealth countries so i think that there's you know there's so many stats that show that there is ample amount of potential in the Commonwealth. I, I wanted to see uh, your guys' kind of point of view. I'm going to try and pronounce this right, is the CPTPP uh, agreement. Um, Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, first of all, I think, no, you're probably best describing what this actual agreement is. Um, and then we can kind of, I suppose, go into it and see what we think. Yeah, yeah, sorry, so, just, just to step in there, that's the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, that might be the longest acronym for any trade deal <laughs> um, that we have, probably be dealing with that sometime soon. But yeah, essentially <laughs> what it is, is um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, just with a shiny new name um, that allows it to expand to include, um, moving forward, us, um, which has been something which um, publicly, I think, a lot of conservatives have been very excited about because it, it's a fantastic free trade um, in theory agreement um, and obviously conservatives do do always love free trade that, that is kind of what we're built on um, but there, there have been some criticisms as well um, and it includes some really really fantastic um, burgeoning economies um, Australia involved Canada Japan Malaysia Mexico New Zealand um, just some examples um, lots of them focused on Southeast Asia. So you've got uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam involved as well. Um, so it's often been seen as a tool to combat the influence of China in the region. Um, so there's lots of really important security implications to uh, the CPTPP. 
um, as well as economic ones. Um, but there's some questions still remain, obviously, about um, moving forward. It's effectiveness, not just in the next couple of years in, our, in terms of our economic growth, um, but what it looks like in, in 20 years, especially when it comes to the environment. I, to be honest, I first heard of that agreement um, when uh, Trump pulled the United States of America out of, I think at the time it was the TPP before they renamed it. Um, that, that's when I first it gained uh, attention to me. Um, so it's worth noting that they were a part of this agreement and they're no longer um, involved. So that kind of uh, almost brought up alarm bells in, in my eyes. Um, so it, it's interesting. What, what are some of the environmental issues? Is, is it just some of these countries are not uh, caring about climate change? Are they just not doing enough? Is that the main sort of issue? It's, it's more of a structural one. So when you sign up um, to the agreement, you're essentially forced to purchase certain amounts of, say, oil um, from companies that are aligned with um, the CPTPP. Um, and okay. you can't break out of those um, agreements. You can't sue the companies to get out of the agreement, but the company can sue you if you stop purchasing from them. So say it, it kind of falls out of line with something like the Paris Climate Agreement, because in terms of like the UK's decarbonisation efforts, we'll get to a stage where we're forced to keep buying oil from these, com these companies and we legally have to, but at the same time, we're trying to cut back in terms of our carbon emissions, which they don't really work in tandem. So either you break with the Paris Climate Agreement or you open yourself up to billions of dollars worth of lawsuits from these companies. Um, so there is concern, especially in, in, in the environmental community, that moving forward, this could be a really serious problem that just gets kicked down the road until we get to 2040 and then turn around going, wait, how do we get out of this mess? Um, so there, there may be some short-termism there, but we'll, we'll see moving forward, I think. I, I have a question with, um, just to play devil's advocate here, that obviously Britain is, uh, with Brexit, that we've left the European Union. Is there something to be said about leaving, leaving one and moving straight into the other that also is controlling? Um, and also effectively locks us in a few things. Obviously, the European Union um, had control over some of our, our policies and how we how we conduct governments and everything like that. So it's very different to a trade agreement. But is there not something fundamental there that we move from one straight to the other? I think that's a really good point. Like one of the concerns I would have is, would we have to do things that we don't necessarily agree with? I mean the. Of course, if you'd be completely right in saying, you know, that there isn't a government in power, that's not like the, you know, we're having to listen to them create no, laws. They don't determine yeah. our laws or anything, but, yeah. but there is still a level of control, which, which I think should be noted. Definitely. I mean, what happens when, uh, let's just say, uh, Australia and Japan are involved in a conflict that we don't necessarily agree with? Are we going to be inclined to join that conflict and have them... Um, almost become their allies and something that we don't actually want to be involved in. Um, is that going to be an issue? Is, is it potential that they could threaten to boot us off? And is that, um, that, would, that would be a concern for me in some of these, once it becomes more than just a trade block, um, which you could argue with the stuff you've said, Noah, in terms of combating climate change and the oil companies, it seems like it may be a bit more than just a simple trading block. So I think that's a really good point um, to discuss in terms of the role of some of these agreements that we're going to have. 
Yeah, I think it has often been mooted as well. as I, I think especially because of the geographic location of a lot of the member states as an anti-China coalition to kind of stop China from like, gathering up all the economic clout in that region. Um, but that does mean that moving forward, if someone like, if someone's, if say Japan um, starts becoming more fictitious with China, that could very easily mean that we are pulled into a conflict that we are either not ready to become a part of or don't want to become a part of, because that, that's not a foregone conclusion, unfortunately. Um, and there is danger of that. Um, but I think we are aware of that danger going into it. That's, that's not something that's remained hidden and this government are obviously fine with it. Um, so less so on the oil issue, but uh, in terms of dragging into conflicts that we don't want to be a part of, I think that's, that's implicit when you join. That's, that's not a surprise down the road like the EU was, where gradually over time it became something that it wasn't at the beginning. It, it morphed from this free trade area, area into essentially a de facto government. This is very different. It, it's, it's very clear, I think, about uh, what it's going to be moving forward. And that's the fundamental difference. I think it's, it's an interesting point. You know, you talk about the, like, the European Union, and I think that's always going to be a massive stigma whenever we join any sort of trading bloc. I think the first thing you, we're going to hear, especially from the left, is um, are we not just signing into something that is the same as the European Union or something that's similar to the European Union? But I think, I think it's clear that they don't have governing power over us. I think that's the most important thing. And it's almost working backwards from there. Um, these countries would not have that governance over us. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a really good point um, you've made there. And I think naturally that kind of goes on to the European Union. I think naturally whenever we're going to talk about trade, there's always going to be this comparison with the European Union. Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Are we doing the same? Um, my, my personal take is I, I think the first year or two um, is it's going to be a difficult period for us. And I think a lot of it is almost mitigating and moving our alliance or our reliance even on the European Union to other countries. And I think this is going to almost be like a transitional period. Um, the, the stat, I think we, we were talking earlier, um, the Commonwealth accounts for 9.1% of all trade to the UK, which is the same as just Germany. So that kind of tells you that um, there's, I suppose, two ways to look at that. Well, one way to look at that is say there is so much potential with the Commonwealth and these other countries, but they're also the, the flip side is that we haven't actually utilized that in the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, and what's to, say that, what's to say that's going to change overnight? So I think there's going to be that almost that point where we're going to have to um, really look at our partners outside of the European Union and initially almost mitigate the fact that we are going to lose a significant chunk um, of our economy that goes to the European Union and almost find alternative solutions to that before then looking at ways to kick on. I think, yeah, I think that's- I agree. That's a really good point. Um, it, the Brexit fundamentally was, was supposed to, at least, um, it might have not looked like it, was supposed to be, be about kicking on in terms of our role on the global arena and our trade deals, not about just rolling them over. Um, and as important as that is, and, and this trust has done a fantastic job in terms of um, maintaining those trade links with countries around the world, um, we do need to find a way to really kick on. And the Commonwealth is a perfect avenue to pursue in that. So especially if you look at somewhere like Africa um, and then being very, very mineral rich, moving forward for the next hundred years, that's going to become more and more and more important, especially as we pursue decarbonisation and we move away from oil and towards especially the lithium batteries. Africa then becomes crucial to that. 
and the Commonwealth is a fantastic way, way to then like pursue those opportunities. I agree, and I think some of your your stat at the nine percent is just just goes to show the the missed opportunities there, and now because of Brexit, the new opportunities that we have, which we're taking, which we're doing. Um, I, I think. Uh, that is a, 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 an able that we can realise the actual global Britain and that a lot of it can be said as a conservative strapline, something to, to push forward propaganda and, and just be there for a campaign perspective. But actually it, it is the, the whole global Britain being realised and actually happening. Um, we just have to, like you said, just have to go on with it now. That's interesting though about Africa um, because we've, discuss them quite a bit on our on our platform um they're almost like a untapped potential if you like um our parliamentary chair helen grant is the trade envoy for nigeria and she's often talked about the potential nigeria has in particular um my, my thing is and it'd be interesting to get your guys take on this is how do we work with these so-called smaller nations and smaller economies because i, I look at a lot of these countries and they've naturally got such incredible resources, um, but their infrastructure doesn't allow them to almost utilize the fact that they have these fantastic resources. So my kind of I think, dilemma, if you like, is what role would the UK have with these smaller nations? I think that's a really important question um, and a very delicate one as well, because it's very easy to kind of come at this from a very British centric perspective. Um, and then it becomes all about progressing Britain's interest worldwide. And that then starts to look a little neocolonial. And that's not really what we're going for. The Commonwealth provides a perfect avenue by which to have people within an organisation that are there optionally, can leave at any point, but want to be there now. And they want to be part of that. It's, it's a, an ability to like, prove that they want to be a part of it and settle the power dynamic. It's within the Commonwealth Charter that all nations within it are equal. And it kind of levels that playing field in a way that we wouldn't have the opportunity to do elsewhere um, and, and gives them more of a standing. Um, so the Commonwealth is a fantastic way, I think, of, of finding that balance um, and meaning that we can find profitable trade deals and um, not necessarily just trade deals, uh, but foreign aid, but that benefit both sides. Um, and, and it's not just a purely power play. I agree. I think it's the, the agreement aspect of it that it, it is that they want the agreement and they want to be able to trade with us. And it's a help me to help you in that if we, are, we do provide the, the necessary social uh, infrastructure and industrial infrastructure so that these countries can actually provide more and therefore trade more with us. I think the issue is, like you said, so many people will have this uh, neo-imperialism, neo-colonialism, uh, and, and be against it. The, the negative connotation, the negative images that go with that, has, you have to strike a balance. You have to, the, the agreement must be robust so that you don't have any of those, those negative images that go around. Um, you touched on, on foreign aid, and I think it's an important uh, fact to say that we are planning to uh, decrease foreign aid. Um, in the next budget what kind of image do you think that that gives off i think it's um i mean i know it received a lot, quite a lot of criticism especially on yeah. social media uh when the, the cut from 0.7 percent to 0.5 percent my, my personal take on it is there's going to be cuts in every single sector um for the british economy for, for a lot of countries 
you can't deny this virus is costing us trillions of pounds. And unfortunately, um, every single aspect of our life, there's going to be cuts. And unfortunately, foreign aid is, is one of them. Um, it's worth noting, we are still the second uh, best contributor out of the G7 countries. Um, so my personal take is unfortunate. And in the ideal world, we, we don't have to do this 0.2% uh, cut. But I think it's a harsh reality of what this virus has done to our economy and our country. Um, the fact that we're having to take such an extreme measure. I, I, I actually would love this, um, as we're talking so much about foreign aid now and it's become a talking point, I would love this to become something where we actually evaluate where our foreign aid money is going and what it's actually doing. I, I would love a, an actual analysis um, on this. Um, because 0.5% of our economy is a considerable amount of money, um, as is 0.7. And I would love to see, is it actually, what kind of actual difference is it making to these countries? On this, my personal, more pragmatic approach would be, like you, you were saying, Phoebe, would be on infrastructure. I think so many of these countries' infrastructure is ignored. Um, and sometimes, just for the sake of humanitarian aid, giving money to these countries um, isn't maybe be, it may be benefiting them short term, but longer term, is it actually making a substantial difference to that country's economy? I'm not so sure. So I, I actually would love the we're, we're talking about the cut as that seems to be the the main message on media and social media. But I would actually love this conversation to change into the sense of where is our money going? What's it actually doing? How effective is it? And mm. how can we make it more effective? I would love that to be the conversation as opposed to we've cut it by 2.2%. I think there's a really interesting um, balance here between, especially when it comes to foreign aid specifically, and especially amongst conservatives, um, about whether we're going for image or whether we're going for impact. Um, because obviously when um, the FCDO became, um, like engulfed the Office for International Development, that was a point of huge contention, not just um, amongst politics, people involved in politics in general but amongst conservatives as well um and that a lot of that stemmed out of the fact that it then looked like foreign aid was becoming um more about power than about development um and, and that kind of lends itself to your point about infrastructure so not it's are we trying to extend britain's soft power here are we trying to send out food packages for britain's flagons people then positively associate with that flag go they helped me personally that's very short-termist. We can't paint a British flag on a building. Um, well, I, I mean, you could, but it would be somewhat ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so, so there is a balance there. Are you looking for tangible impacts in these countries um, in the long term, or are you looking for soft power over their citizens in the short term? I mean, if you can hit both facets, you, that would probably be a sweet spot, but it's very hard to then because the amount of money becomes rather insignificant if you're only allocating 0.25% Exactly. That, that's it's a good point because you know the image versus the actual reality of what we're doing and i i've just got up the top five countries that we've given aid to um in 2019 and they were pakistan ethiopia afghanistan yemen and nigeria were the top five and i i look at all five countries uh, and the example i'm going to use is, is india so the um the the modi administration since he's been in power their biggest focus was infrastructure uh, he did this whole campaign on infrastructure. He's won two elections on literally, I think um, Tony Blair's was education, education, education. His has literally been infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And it's made a significant difference in India. 
Um, where they're a bit different to some of these countries is they do have um, huge wealth of money in, in comparison. Some of these countries don't have the same level of economy. But what he's done, I think, has been very effective in terms of having this infrastructure um, uh, emphasis. And if you look at the FDI, the foreign direct investment in that country, it's gone up even this year under COVID-19. They've increased, um, they've had an increase in uh, their foreign direct investment. And I think personally that is one of the biggest things that is overlooked in some of these smaller nations or developing nations and in some of these countries that have such a huge uh, gap, uh, wealth gap, which those five countries I've just listed, um, I think are fantastic examples of countries who have that huge wealth gap in, in their country. So I, I would love to see some of that foreign aid go to infrastructure. How much of it does and how much of it doesn't, I don't know. But I, I, I think it's a conversation I think that needs to be had more. Um, because I, I just feel like right now the narrative is they're cutting 0.2%. Is this a good idea? Is this bad? Is it bad for the image? Is it bad for uh, the country? Are we now washing our hands off the rest of the world? And I, I don't really think that's the, the right conversation. I think part of that narrative was born specifically out of when the uh, Department for International Development, when that amalgamated with the FCDO, uh, I think a quite a large number of uh, significant politicians, I'm not sure whether the government ever said it specifically, um, in an attempt to reassure those who were very concerned about it, said we're not going to cut foreign aid budget in terms of percentage. That was, that was even if it wasn't official government policy, that was the noises that we were getting out of the government. A lot of people just didn't believe them. And despite the circumstances that may justify it, this now looks like this was the plan all along, if you know what I mean. And I think mm -hmm. that's the concern that people have. So do you think we realistically see the foreign aid budget go back up to 0.7% in two years' time? I, I would be very surprised. Um, and I think that's the concern that I've got, and that's the concern a lot of people have, is that this has just been an excuse to be able to do something that they were planning to do all along. I think that's a, that's a valid point. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's such a, like, it is a sensitive topic. Like, it's a very difficult one to talk about. It does evoke a lot of sort of, emotion i've seen some even tory mps that have been very against the the, the cut um and so i, I don't know it, it's a it's a really difficult one I, I i i just want an evaluation where our money goes to be honest I, I i'm not sure how many people really know where this foreign aid goes and what impact it has and i just really want to know that those five countries that we're contributing to what are we actually doing in those countries and are they benefiting from how much are they benefiting? they obviously are getting some benefit from us um but I would love to know um, what actual difference it's making. Um, it's probably a good time actually to um, bring in our Michael Chong um, uh, clip because he, he discussed about um, the need for organizations like the Commonwealth and multilateral organizations having a bigger impact. So he, he's had this feeling that protectionism has really grown across the globe in the last four or five years. And it's the time now for organizations like the Commonwealth to have a bigger input? Well, I, you know, the, the Commonwealth is um, an association of more than four dozen countries uh, with historic links to each other and to the United Kingdom. Um, you know, billions of people live in countries that are members of the Commonwealth. And so I think it's an important multilateral institution that, like the Frankfurt League, we should be working with in order to protect uh, our interests and to defend, to project our values around the world. And so uh, 
conservatives believe that um, in re-engaging in a deeper way in the Commonwealth in order to accomplish that. I think multilateral organizations have become increasingly important in the last um, number of years, particularly because of the rise in authoritarianism. Um, I think it's clear that mid, uh, small to mid-sized countries uh, have been increasingly used as pinatas in you know global game of, um, of great power uh, conflict. Um, and so in that context, uh, strengthening and renewing multilateral institutions like the Commonwealth, I think should be a key foreign policy priority of the Canadian government. Um, What what did you guys think? Um, That was Michael Trong, the uh, Canadian MP, uh, who's a shadow minister for foreign affairs. I think he he makes a very good point. And I think if you look especially at uh, international relations over, especially the the real global era over the past hundred or so years, you do see this, this ebb and flow of isolationism, protectionism, and then the return of globalism. And often that comes with conflict. Um, and I think we're, we're at a stage now where or there's almost this economic arms race burgeoning, uh, where we're not necessarily doing it militarily, but the world is readying for um, not, not an economic crisis in the traditional sense, but in China is building, um, Russia is always there. Um, and the US was, I think, taking a minute, realizing that it was falling behind. Um, and then that led the rest of the world to um, run scared almost um, and realized that they needed to protect themselves because something was coming, whether that be an active conflict, whether that be a renewed Cold War between the, the, the West and especially China. Um, and I think multilateral organizations do give a really good opportunity um, to, to kind of quell those fears and, if necessary, form those blocks, which will become increasingly important over the next especially half century. I think there is a transition as well um, with the obviously the start of the Biden administration. You see Trump pull out of so many agreements and so many deals, which has you know created a wave of, of how everyone else reacts because they're such a, a large power. And I think that we'll definitely see changes, uh, and we're already seeing change with with Biden coming in. Yes, I've got a slight different take on this. I I, I think. I think what's happened is um, I think some of these multilateral organizations and one of the reasons I don't agree with Trump pulling out every single one that he did, but I do think there needs to be almost like a reevaluation point for a lot of them. I think what's happened is, um, and you could argue it's cyclical, um, is we've almost become too integrated. And I, and I think it's almost forced integration as opposed to willingness integration. And one of the things it's difficult because whenever you use this word, I think, especially in this country, we're going to say we think of Adolf Hitler or we think of, you know, um, extreme right. And that's nationalism. And I, and I think I think it's almost been ignored. And my worry with Biden and some other administrations is there you, you need to have some form of nationalism in whatever country you live in or are from. If you're not proud to be British, for example, then why are you not going to pay taxes? Why are you going to contribute to society? You won't care. And I think what's happened is, I think there's been in the last, I'd say maybe five to 10 years, there's been this real push for multilateral organizations to really integrate to each other and almost force this integration to a point where 
you're now at the stage and you're thinking, what is it? What is being British? What is being German? What is being Indian? Like, I don't think, I think when you fought, when you enforce this so much, there it then becomes this um, backlash, which I think is what the world went through four years ago with Brexit and Trump, which is that kind of, um, you know, let's, we've had enough. And I, and I think it's dangerous now to all of a sudden jump into these multilateral uh, organizations and jump straight back into it. I think my concern is I don't think we're necessarily listening to why those things happened four years ago, five years ago. Um, I'm not sure if we're answering those concerns um, with some of the, um, for, for example, Biden jumping back into those, um, some of the ones he's already jumped back into. I think WHO is a good example. I mean, there were some serious concerns there and may, of course you want the United States or America to be part of the WHO, but has he really sat down and evaluated why Trump left, why a number of Republicans and Democrats were happy with them leaving the WHO? Has he really gone to WHO and done a, an independent inquiry and, or has he just jumped in again to show the sign of we're back together trying to heal the world? Yeah, well, anti-Trump. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with yeah. you. I think the funding, the amount uh, of funding that America provides to some of these organizations, including, for example, NATO, um, it's, it's a huge budget that goes over to there. One of the biggest spenders, which you could arguably say uh, is for uh, uh, against Russia or for the, the Baltic forces that aren't even close to America. You know, they got the geopolitics coming into play where they, the America was spending an awful amount of their, a lot of their budget on these, on these organizations, which now might not be necessary for them to do so. So I completely, I completely agree. I think part of it as well, like, especially when you look at uh, this Biden administration is all about image. Um, so I think a really, really perfect example of it is, um, so one of the very rare uh, crossovers between someone, between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump was they were both wholeheartedly supportive of uh, the US pulling out of the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Agreement, both wholly supportive of pulling out of it. Um, but now that Sanders has been kind of parachuted into this Biden administration, he's now all in favor of rejoining. it. And there's been a complete flip there that doesn't seem like there's any statistical reason for it or any change in real policy for it. It's all about image. Um, and I think when you, when you talk about nationalism, I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think Biden sees um, the U.S. like being patriotic about the U.S. About, is about Team America World Police. And it is that neocon um, interventionism, whereas uh, Trump's version of patriotism or nationalism was about um, that American success story, um, that, that Midwestern real Americans, he'd like to call them. So they are really fighting the same battle, but they're just two sides of the same coin. And it, it then looks like they're opposites, but they're actually, they're running off of the same emotion. Um, but it, it's hard to see that sometimes, I think, because they, they're demonstrated so, so uh, radically different. That's my, my big concern is I just don't, before we jump into bed with these multilateral organizations, is I, I just think there is a significant portion of people in this country, in the States, in a number of different countries, democracies that um, we just can't ignore. And, and, and my big concern is if we start to go down this route of, um, there's no denying the last four or five years we have become, I completely agree with Michael Chung that we have become more protectionist. We have become more, there's more authoritarian genes. But I, I think there's a reason that happened. And I think it's important that we understand why that happened 
and we actually take a real realization. But my concern is, especially with Biden, I don't think in this country we're doing that, but I think in the States, they do seem to be doing this. Is this like this um, almost forget the four years that happened, why Trump was elected, what, what, how a lot of America still feels those 70 million people who voted for him. Um, not every single one of them is racist. Not every single one of them is far right and, and evangelical. Like there is actually some portion of middle America that still feel a certain way about America. And my concern is I'm not sure if they are listening to those people or have actually taken a step back. Um, I think in this country, we're doing a better job of it. I think, um, I, I don't think, I think Boris and um, the, the, this government has done a much better job of it. I don't think we're as, um, I don't think we're as jumping into these multilateral agreements as quickly as it seems like they are. But I, I would like, I think, um, almost a reevaluation point of what's happened in the last four or five years before we start to talk about multilateral organizations, before we start really, um, bringing them back into place you know it's worth noticing a lot of these were created after world war ii and i just feel like we've gone from um being integrated together to benefit each other to now it's forced integration and i think that's one of the big reasons the european union failed and arguably continuous is continually failing right now is this, this idea of forcing us to be integrated forcing this euro army forcing this has us have a universal tax system. Like, I, I really don't think some of those states are actually understanding um, the feeling in France, the feeling in Germany. Um, and my concern is, it's, just, it's, a, it's a sensitive one. You, you say nationalism and people don't like that word whatsoever. Um, I don't know your guys' take on it. I think some of the concern I've got is when you look at, again, this, this ebb and flow of history, the last time that, or really, I think probably the first time, actually, um, that there was genuine attempt um, to really globalize the world, bring people together in theory, was the League of Nations. Mm. And then when countries start to feel like that integration was getting forced, feel like they weren't getting listened to, and they started to go their own ways, the world order kind of descended very, very quickly into this, anarchical violence um, and even though that may not be military in today's world economic violence can can damage countries mm. just as badly and that is that is worth watching out for because there's that whole thing about history history rhymes it, it, it's not mm. exactly the same every time but but these things happen over and over and over again and then only when it's happened three or four times we look back and go oh we should have seen that coming um, and i'm just worried that as we embark on this i think the world we've toyed with it a few times, but if the world goes down this isolationist protectionist path, um, that eventually we will get to a point where everyone's standing alone and then China or Russia or someone like that stands up and goes, well, everyone alone is too weak. I'm just going to completely envelop Hong Kong now. Um, nobody's going to stop me. And then they expand that, they go for the, um, they go for the valleys and then disputed with India. And again, India's then standing alone and they get engulfed. And this is what happens in history over and over and over and over again. But I think Russia's already doing that. that. They're, they're, already, they're already testing the waters, they're already dipping their toe in. And the main, anything where a, a breaking of union or a breaking of, uh, a, of any agreement or anything, anything isolationist is great for Russia because at that point, it's it's seen as a weakness, and it's it gives them a chance just to test. And you you know that Putin will do it. You know that they have no issue 
um, you know, annexing wherever and just testing to see how, how does NATO react? How long does it take for states to react? What, what actually happens? And they've done it very recently. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised that in, in the growing years that they, they would continue to just, just push over the line slightly. You could argue China still doing the same thing. I mean, the, the way they're, yeah. they're acting in, in, in Africa, I think yeah. there's some question marks there. Um, I, I think they just do it in a much discreeter way and um, they, they, don't, they don't do it the same way Russia do it. But I, I would argue, to be honest, I think in some cases they're a bigger threat, um, especially with their, their cyber warfare. I, I think it's, 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 it's a good point. And that's a really um, good point from both of you in terms of the when you do become isolated, the, you do leave yourself weak and open for attack. So I, I think it's interesting. I think that's going to be um, a big part. And it kind of, I think, I suppose it leads on quite well to our next kind of discussion point, which was on immigration. Um, obviously, with global Britain, there's going to be more and more talk of, we talk about free trade, um, naturally. Naturally, also that there are going to be uh, people who are going to ask, what does that mean for freedom of movement? It's, there's been you know, talks of the CANS-UK um, uh, agreement having free, freedom of movement between those countries. So where I don't know how you guys feel about the general state of immigration and how some of these agreements, should they have immigration involved is, is some of it or should it just be something completely different? I think it's a, it's a really, really complicated issue. Um, and I think it's worth as well pointing out just because um, it's something that obviously has been talked about a lot in political spheres, but may have gone under the radar of some people is that the UK is now using an Australian points-based style system um, in order to determine whether someone's eligible for, say, a work visa. Um, and that's then applicable to the whole world rather than just everyone that didn't live in, on average, more wealthy white European nations. Um, so, so that's the system that we're now using. Um, and any agreement with, say, Kansak about freedom of movement would then change that system fundamentally. So that is worth understanding that that would be a very, very fundamental change to a, an already very new um, system, which we've only just started building. So there'd be a huge risk there in terms of renewing our whole immigration policy every two years or so would, would be insane from a policy standpoint. Um, but one can understand that it might be valuable under Kanzuk um, to make agreements about the, the, the say, reducing the, the points quota that one needs um, to get a visa. So it's still selective, um, but because those countries are, say, English speaking, which one does get points under, points for, under the, uh, the system that we're using at the moment, then if you speak English, you're vastly more likely to be given a visa. That may, um, if we place more weight on that, say, that may make it easier for people from Kanzuk to come come and work in the UK. That might be a cleverer way of doing it rather than just having complete freedom of movement. What's your um, opinion on the, the points-based system? I personally, I, I like it. I, I think it's a big improvement on the what we've had previously. I, I, I think because the, the argument is, I, I saw Pretty Patel, I don't know if you, if you guys saw on LBC earlier this morning, um, and she discussed a lot of different topics and they briefly touched on immigration. Um, and they, she talked about how I think the circumstances in the UK have changed considerably in the last 30, 40 years when it comes to labour, and I, I would take that further. So we were also very relaxed in the 70s and 80s, um, 
we had a labor shortage. So I, I think sometimes people like miss this point. I'm obviously Indian descent. So both my parents are Indian, born in India and uh, were immigrants who came to this country in the 70s and 80s. Now, back then we had a labor shortage. So it makes sense that you relax immigration and that it's more easier to come to this country. Now we don't have a labor shortage. Um, so it makes sense on a pragmatic way that it's going to be harder to come to the country. And I don't think anyone, depending on what country they're from, should get that benefit of because we're part of a block or because you're um, where geography doesn't really matter now. It's not hard to come here. I don't think I, I, I would just want the best people from the the most elite people um, in terms of their profession, in terms of their workforce, in terms of their skill set. I think they should get priority that comes in. I, I like the idea of if we have a shortage of accountants in this country, then all of a sudden, um, if you're an accountant, then you have a higher priority because we need more accountants. I, I, For me, that makes total sense. And I think it's interesting what you said, Noah, about the English speaking aspect. I, I personally prefer that as opposed to uh, having a block where if you're from these four or five countries, you're allowed to come into the country. I think the fact that you... I think one of the criteria is getting extra points for speaking English makes sense to me. So I, I like the idea of a points-based system. Obviously, it's, um, I mean, a points-based system in itself has so much that you can disagree on and what decides what points uh, is, we could debate that for hours. But I think yeah. English is definitely, English speaking makes sense to me um, as something that gets more points. Yeah, I think um, the point you're making um, in regards to accountancy is really, really important one because there was lots of criticism. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they changed the weighting of some of the points only a couple of days after it, after they first announced it. Because it, um, I believe it was, was it nurses, nurses in the NHS, which then suddenly yeah. would have had a shorter job, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had to reevaluate it. So if that's a fluid process and if there's ever a shortage of, of say, for example, nurses or lawyers or something, that, that's a really, really fantastic way of then balancing that out um, because it means that you're not left with um, a, a sudden shortage in a really, really key industry. Um, but again, that needs to be, be done really well. And that, that analysis then costs a lot of money as well. Mm. Um, and you run into challenges about, um, say, if we didn't have enough cleaners, say, that's, that's not something you have a degree for. Um, so it's then hard to judge whether someone could come in and do that. Um, which is why I think I think there is a condition in it that you do get points if you've already got a job lined up but then um, there's obviously lots of challenges as to people who's going to be really looking internationally for low-paid jobs um, so yeah there's lots and lots of questions about it and lots of things to be ironed out but I think as we move forward um, they, they will get ironed out fairly quickly because every time that there is a problem um, especially an important one it has to get solved quickly and once we've done that we can learn from it and that problem won't come around again. So there will be teething issues. There always is where we completely rip up an entire new system. And it'd be naive to think otherwise. Um, but there, there needs to be an element of positivity about it. We will learn, we will move forward. We will always get better. Uh, I, I, I agree, no, I, I, think, I think it's the, it's the right start anyway. I, I think naturally there's gonna be those um, teething issues to begin with, but I think it's, I think the principle of the point-based system, I think, is something to definitely explore. The practicality of it is going to take time. You know, we, we can't have Australia uh, style. We we can't copy them word for word. You know, there are a much 
um, bigger country with uh, you know, a lot less people per square meter than we have. So there is going to be naturally huge differences there. But I, I, the general principle for me, from what I've read and heard of a points-based system, I like the idea of it. I, I know it's a big change from freedom of movement uh, with the European Union, but I, I think it's a good starting block. Um, it's probably worth now actually bringing in a clip from John Bird, uh, former uh, cabinet member under the Stephen Harper administration. Um, he discussed about the role of UK and Canada can play. UK can provide, uh, you know, leadership that no one else can provide based on uh, the historic reality. Uh, and uh, I'd like to see the UK and Canada step up their engagement with the uh, with the Commonwealth. Um, uh, in my time there, the, uh, our success was, uh, was lacking and wanting, uh, but uh, hopefully in the post-EU period for the UK, that can be a, uh, that can be a place we get to put more energy and get more success. Um, I think it has great, uh, great uh, potential, particularly on the interests and on the values uh, side. And you look at, you look at, uh, you look at uh, countries, uh, uh, in the Commonwealth, you look at uh, Nigeria, uh, the huge potential uh, there. Uh, you look at, uh, at uh, the growth that's been dissipated in, uh, in Africa. Uh, you look at the powerhouse that is India, uh, huge, huge, uh, huge potential. It's interesting because he, he um, quite a bit on that webinar, uh, spoke about the role of UK and Canada and, and almost us being the guys who provide that leadership, provide that, um, almost, I suppose, provide that inspiration to really kick these initiatives off. So it was, it was a, a similar in some ways to uh, Michael Chong's belief on um, the, the role that we can have and almost being the spearheads uh, globally, um, which I suppose falls well in line with global Britain, uh, that kind of policy from the government. Um, but I suppose it goes back to the question of the role that a UK or Canada should have um, with the world, especially with the smaller nations, like he mentioned Nigeria and some of the African nations. Yeah, he did. I just think that that just opens up to more opportunity in that, you know, about 49% of our trade was with the EU when we were part of the European Union. And now that, that that allows us to open up and really take every opportunity. And like we discussed earlier, look at the smaller countries, not by uh, geography, but obviously by GDP and um, infrastructure, and look at the emerging markets, seeing the opportunity, and really just spending a little bit of extra time to find, you know, the new opportunity now with our, with our new freedom. I think it really aligns with global Britain, and it really allows us to, to basically be thrusted into the world stage um, and seek every opportunity. Well, if you look at half of the top 20 global emerging cities are in the Commonwealth, so New Delhi, Mumbai, Nairobi, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Bangalore, Johannesburg, uh, Kolkata, Cape Town, Chennai, and Dhaka. Um, so, I mean, th these are, I think, cities and areas that we're definitely not probably uh, maximizing. Um, and, and it's promising. I mean, there are, that's 10 of the top 20 uh, cities across the globe that just aren't... I, I think that there's so much more we could be doing. Yeah, I think... What's crucial to understand in this whole global Britain idea um, and moving beyond Brexit is that this is a long term plan. So that we may in five years time, we may look back and go, 
we are actually just as well off now as we were when we were in the EU. And it's the exact same, maybe a little bit worse, maybe a little bit better. But the plan has to be focused on where we are in 20 years, where we are in 50 years. And that fundamentally is, is at the core of what this, what conservatism is meant to be. It's, it's, it's meant to be about looking forward um, and how can we make this country um, and the world better for the people that come after us. And Brexit provides the opportunity to do that through so many of these different avenues that we've spoken about today. Um, but we just need to, in five years, it's not a million times better. We don't need to freak out. We need to just be realistic about it. Brexit doesn't mean the UK is just going to burn and collapse. Like I think some people have tried to say it will. <laughs> well, people don't like change, do they? Exactly. But what it's also change? not going to mean that we're not this golden paradise in six months time neither of those two things are going to happen and some people seem to think that they are and those people are are, are naive i think but in 20 years that's what we need to be working towards that we look that then we can look back and go wow we are so much better because we've put the effort in and we've had this long-term vision no i i, I totally agree and i i look at brexit commonwealth um all these things as so with my finance uh, hat on i look at it simply as we're diversifying our portfolio like i i just think if you if you look at the um if you're to analyze this on a purely economic basis uh in the last four years i think the the amount of reliance we've had on two i would say okay you can't call them countries but one trade block the european union and china is crazy and I think for considering how big the world is considering how much the economy the rest of the world has the amount of reliance we have on these two sections um, in some ways you could argue is a bit absurd so I think the idea of us diversifying our portfolio to the point where um, if something bad happens in China or, or, or they collapse we still survive there's something going wrong in the European Union we still have other avenues I, I just think, on, I think diversifying our portfolio is so important and I think that's the great thing about this Global Britain initiative that I like um, in particular and the Commonwealth with the 54 different countries is we can do that. We can diversify away. We're not going to be relying on one block, one country um, as much as we are now um, in four to five years. And you know, you're completely right. We may not be necessarily a better position in terms of our economic outlook right there and then, but I, I can almost guarantee we would be I, maybe our GDP won't be as high um, in three or four years as it is as it was maybe four years ago. But you could argue our economic outlook may be better because we're less reliant on two sections of the world. We, you know, I think there's different ways you can uh, analyze a country's economy, and you could argue for the last 10, 15 years, uh, our economy is China and European Union. That's our that's makes the bulk of our economy. And how strong is that economy versus an economy that is um, more reflective of the globe? I, I think the two complete different questions. So I think that I'll be um, something that I, I'll be very interested to see what happens uh, in the coming weeks and months and, and, and years. Um, should we do our last clip? I think it's uh, Deanna Davis. Yeah, I, I was going to say Deanna's uh, comments on the Commonwealth are really inspiring and I love the, the, the gusto that she has. Um, I'll play it now. Well, thank you so much. And obviously it's so relevant to this call. Um, 
I, you know, for my entire life, have been such an enormous fan of the Commonwealth and I really wanted to see it kind of engage an awful lot more in terms of um, trade, in terms of things like, you know, visa arrangements and all that sort of thing, uh, which is something that, you know, come, come the end of the year, we are going to have so much more freedom to do. I know we're already talking to, uh, to, to Canada, um, we're, talk, we're in very, very strong talks with the Australians to try and get a, a really good comprehensive free trade agreement in place. Um, and I think really, you know, the, the, the vision that I have for a post-Brexit Britain is one that really opens its arms and embraces the world. And from my perspective, we should definitely, definitely be using our alliances right across the Commonwealth as the kind of bedrock for that, um, of us kind of really, you know, forming these even stronger relationships, both in terms of trade and every other aspect, with, uh, with places like, uh, like, like Canada and, and Australia. And using that to then help us uh, form relationships with, with countries that they neighbour. And um, one of the, the, the kind of schemes that I'm really interested in is getting involved in is the, the CPTPP, which we could certainly potentially get access to, which would be incredible. Um, so I, th I think trade is really one of the, the key aspects. For well, is that fine? I think she definitely pronounced uh, CPTPP more smoothly <laughs> than, than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, really was... fix that name. <laughs> yeah, but her, her, her attitude is definitely something that I can get behind. Um, and it really does uh, encapsulate the whole global Britain ethos and, and the vision. And, I, and I, really, I really like how motivated she is. Yeah, likewise, I think her enthusiasm for it is, is, is so strong. And uh, <laughs> it'd be good to have more sort of MPs of the same sort of um same sort of enthusiasm towards the commonwealth it's it is it's i think it it does offer that it is exciting like we you know we're going to engage with countries that we haven't engaged with arguably ever in the past before we're going to engage um a lot more with different countries and uh, it is a really like an exciting period and it's going to come with pitfalls and challenges but i think there's so much optimism um and i think she sums it up really really well there um so I, I think that that'll be uh, an interesting side of things. But there's, I think, the the key thing is, I think you know, you said that start. It's a, it's almost a, a working progress, and it, it's going to go on for some time. Um, and it needs to be. It needs to have that fluidity that we are evolving and changing. And um, one thing's for sure, I think it's, it's definitely going to be. I think there is going to be an element of unpredictability. Like I don't, I think it's going to be very hard for us to really predict. Um, what the next few months and years have. I think it is worth as well, just a massive shout out, Liz Trost doing a fantastic job um, in terms of Agreed. maintaining those trade deals. Um, and just as a, as a little prediction just for myself, has really thrust herself in beyond uh, Johnson's government. I would not be surprised to see um, Liz Trust make a serious run at leadership after this, because uh, I think quietly um, has been doing a magnificent job yeah, definitely. As a, a football fan, I, I want her signed up by Chelsea negotiating our transfers because yeah, she's done incredible. <laughs> she's she's done amazing, um, amazingly well. I think that's a good point. I mean, some of those trade deals that she she's agreed with, I, I think, it, well, it, it's over fifty odd now. I, I don't know the exact number, but that is a substantial amount. Um, yeah, I think especially considering the pandemic and the kind of pause that has been put on a lot of politics. Um, I think every few days you're seeing another picture of Liz Truss on a Zoom call with another trade deal. 
Um, and to be able to do all of that, number one, not in person, when you're negotiating something like that is hugely impressive. But whilst the rest mm. of the politics and almost the world has kind of just gone on pause for 18 months now, um, she's, she's really, really powering through. I think she's definitely done a fantastic job there. I think the most recent one was India. That was the one I saw the most recent, I think, tweets and stuff on that they've uh, got an agreement with. And I think that's a really, really exciting um, deal that they've got uh, there. So I think, I think, yeah, she's, she's doing a great job. I, I think that whole uh, foreign office is clearly doing something very right um, in, in the work that they're doing. But, um, I think that's pretty much, I think we've covered quite a lot today. Um, I think it's, def uh, it's, it's definitely going to be an interesting period. Um, I know we, we, we've touched on China quite a bit in this chat, but we will be having one very soon just yeah. on China. That'll be a very uh, interesting, very interesting <laughs> A chat, long so. podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've come up in both our podcasts quite a bit already. I know, yeah. we can't, we ha I think we have to talk about them in the next one. Yeah, we have to do it properly. Put it off any longer, it's what everyone wants to know. <laughs> I, I don't think, I, there's not been a single event in the last three or four months that China hasn't come up in any of our webinars, these podcasts, anything we're doing, it is literally the, the biggest talking point for sure. Um, and uh, we'll definitely have some more snippets from politicians across the globe discussing China. Um, for me, I, I look at it as a fantastic opportunity for the Commonwealth. That, that's my, my angle for it, to be honest. I, I just, you know, we'll go more into it in the next episode, but um, yeah, I, I just see it as a fantastic opportunity. Um, but I think that's pretty much everything. Uh, I think, thank you for everyone for tuning in and listening. Um, and. Uh, as we've said, our next podcast will be on China. Um, we also have webinars coming out this month. Um, huge representation from New Zealand, Simon Bridges, Judith Collins next week, and uh, also John Howard, uh, the former Australian Prime Minister, on our platform in March. But um, till next time.